Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a programme that ponders on the issues of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this programme we have news stories including the new Ionic 5 gives new opportunities for interior design of vehicles. There's an all-new Subaru WRX, including a sports wagon. Hyundai goes hard for hydrogen. Peugeot's new vans are an important part of their mix. Mini now has multi-coloured roofs. And Honda will slowly implement a new surround view system. And we have two special interviews. Murray Hubbard has written a book, Car Wars Down Under, the untold story of Australia's first land speed record. It's not just for rev heads, it is a rollicking yarn about the life and times around the period of the First World War. We'll have the first instalment of our chat this week. And just after the launch of their new Land Cruiser, we spoke to Sean Henley, who is the Vice President of Marketing and Franchise Operations for Toyota Australia. He reflected on the history of the vehicle in Australia as Toyota's first export product from Japan. Now there's more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City Driven Media. Let's get this program going first with the news. The recently released Hyundai Ionic 5 electric vehicle is built on a specialist platform with a flat floor and an opportunity for different ways to use the interior space as Chris Saltipedis, Hyundai Australia's product planning manager, describes. The interior design concept is based on what we call a smart living space. With the application on top of that platform, it lends to a very flexible platform, which can lead to many different solutions. Apart from the centre console, we have a sliding glove box, which has got like nine and a half litres capacity, so if you're conventional, just folding lid. We have uh, relaxation front seats, which... You know, you can put into a zero gravity position where you're on a road trip and you've stopped charging somewhere while you're so you consider relaxing the car. Uh, and rear seats that electrically slide forward and backwards. So, you know, you can customize the rear seat area as you wish, or you can slide them forward to improve that rear cargo area. One of the most enjoyable vehicles from Subaru in recent years was the Lavorg. Terrible name, which it was pointed out, spelt grovel when written backwards but it was a good-looking station wagon with a WRX motor. With more than adequate power and all-wheel drive, it had enjoyable performance without neck-snapping acceleration or harsh ride. But they stopped selling it. Fortunately, they have just announced that the next-generation Subaru WRX, due in Australia in the second quarter of 2022, will not only have a performance sedan, but also a sports wagon. Subaru made a WRX sports wagon in the 90s and early 2000s when they still included the word Impreza in the name, but the back of the car had glass areas that gave a bubbly look that was as polarising as the common big air scoop at the front. The new one won't be called the Lavorg. Hyundai Mobis is the parts and service company of the Hyundai Group. They've just announced an investment totalling the equivalent of nearly 1.5 billion Australian dollars into two hydrogen fuel cell plants in South Korea. 
The new plants will start mass production in the second half of 2023 and are expected to produce 100,000 hydrogen fuel cells every year. In Australia, private industry and state governments have made some recent announcements of establishing hydrogen production plants. Hyundai Australia has been working hard to get an understanding of why battery and hydrogen electric cars have many benefits. Scott Nagar has been leading their efforts. I think the announcements have been very productive from governments, from Twiggy Forest himself and from what Hyundai has just announced themselves in the last couple of weeks about our transition for the future and our vision for the future with technology we've been working on for 20 years now. At a recent transport conference, Professor David Hensher from Sydney University lamented that we typically analyse people movements and freight movements separately, but they are fundamentally linked. An Intelligent Transport Systems webinar showed that the reduction in cars during COVID lockdowns had made freight delivery times quicker and more consistent, thus helping with scheduling. And many vehicle brands know that both car and commercial sales are key to their success. Peugeot vans typically make up nearly a quarter of their total sales. In 2020, their expert van was their second best-selling vehicle. Peugeot Australia is gearing up to further capitalise on the light commercial vehicle segment. The other common thread in recent transport conferences is the changing environment and the uncertainty of what will be needed in the future. Peugeot has specifically moved away from a one-size-fits-all strategy to meeting varying needs of owner-operators and owner-drivers, including small to medium businesses. There have been various trends in selling motor vehicles when manufacturers offer an option of a two-tone paint job. Prominent in the 50s was different colours along the side panels based on the styling features, the lines and creases in the bodywork. More recently, there has been a revitalisation of making the roof a different colour, often simply white or black. A very different colour for outside mirrors and feature lines of the car have been tried, but not taken up significantly by the market. Now, Mini Australia is offering a multi-tone roof design feature. They describe it as, A visual highlight of the design is the flowing gradient between the three colours, transitioning gently from dark San Marino blue in the front section of the roof to a lighter shade, pearly aqua, before blending into jet black at the rear. Slight deviations in colour pattern occur due to changing environmental conditions. We presume they are talking about short-term changes in temperature rather than global warming. Detecting other vehicles in the blind spot has been enhanced with technology, but there are still extremities of the vehicle that are hard to see. Honda has announced their new Sensing 360 omnidirectional system, which, they say, removes blind spots around the vehicle and contributes to collision avoidance. Sensing 360 adds a total of five units of millimetre wave radar in front and at each corner of the vehicle, in addition to the monocular camera that is used currently. This covers blind spots around the vehicle and should contribute to the avoidance of collisions with other vehicles, even coming at right angles, and of course pedestrians. They hope it will also reduce pressure on drivers. It's going to take a long while to get to all markets. Honda will first introduce it in 2022 in China. Then, they say, strive to get to all new models in all major markets by 2030. 
And that has been the news. There's a new book out called Car Wars Down Under, the untold story of Australia's first land speed record, written by Murray Hubbard. I wondered if it was a story for the mechanically minded, a car enthusiast, a lone backyard mechanic with an inventive approach involving carburetors and camshafts. As it turns out, it is a rollicking yarn involving hardcore business, invective marketing, ambition, a high-risk approach to communication, the occasional rogue character, and intense competition. And it's set around the time of the First World War, which that alone produced some unexpected situations. Like a good biography, it's not just a list of the fine details of one person's life. It's about the life and times of the people in an event. This should not surprise those who know Murray, who is a motoring journalist, but among other things was a three-time finalist for investigative reporting in the Walkley Awards. And he wrote the manuscript for The Day of the Roses, a Channel 10 miniseries and telemovie. G'day, Murray. G'day, David. How's it going? Mate, uh, I enjoyed the book immensely. Now, the first chapter begins indicating the sort of people you will be talking about. And there's a photo in there as well. Where was it and who was it? Edward Eager in two cars parked in front of the uh, Cheops, the biggest pyramid in Egypt. (laughs) (laughs) Now, there's got to be a link there to selling cars in Australia. (laughs) Edward Eager was one of the main characters of the book. Why was he there and what was he driving? He formed a friendship with uh, John Willys North from uh, Willys Cars. And he was an American born in uh, near Toledo. And after this friendship with uh, John Willys, he applied for and got the rights to sell Willys Cars in the Southern Hemisphere, plus in Africa. So he was in Africa signing up uh, the new dealer, in uh, from Alexandra and obviously they had a couple of cars shipped there before he got there and they decided to uh, do a bit of uh, two-wheel driving and four-wheel drive country out to the big pyramid in 1911. He was an American but he had moved to Australia did he think the Willys I know some say it should be pronounced Willis but we I think we all know it as Willys. Willys yeah. Was it a good car for Australia? I think um, when you reflect on the cars that were good for Australia, certainly Willys was up there. They had reliability, they were affordable, they weren't as cheap as the T-Model, but they were uh, probably a fair bit easier to drive than the T-Model. And uh, along with Studebaker was another good uh, brand also for Australian conditions. They They were fairly toughly built, the Willys, as were the Studebakers and also the t model. You mentioned the Model T. It was significantly cheaper. What, a third of price in, of some of the others? Maybe half a price, half the price of some of the others? But it did have its drawbacks. I think lighting wasn't its strongest point. <laughs> no, um, lighting was an interesting uh, thing to be involved in with an, uh, a T model because the lighting was dependent on the engine revs. And uh, the faster you went, the brighter the lights got. But if you broke down, you had no lights. And they ended up, I think, putting uh, kerosene lamps on either side of the car. The people that use these cars, it wasn't just the decadent joy of private motoring. Doctors and things, it it, it was a a major part of uh, keeping services to regional areas? Doctors in particular, yeah, because they... 
they were often called out at night to deliver babies and help people with um, different ailments in outlying places. So um, before that, they'd have to get up at two in the morning and uh, harness their horse to the carriage and uh, off they go, you know, a few miles away to, to help some poor person who was in trouble. Um, the car changed that uh, to a great extent because they could just go out and uh, get the car started, um, in some cases, with a crank handle, and off they'd go with uh, lights and everything to, to show them the way and uh, get there quicker than otherwise, which may well have saved lives. This was, of course, starting to develop, uh, particularly uh, leading up to the First World War. Now, we didn't like the Germans then, but we took a dislike to American product as well. Why was that? Because uh, the Allies were at war. You know, the Brits were there, the Indians there, the Aussies were there, and fighting the uh, uh, the Germans in the trenches and all of this thing in World War One, and uh, fighting for the French. And where were the Americans? Hmm. They didn't enter the war. And uh, that that caused quite a bit of dislike from Australia towards uh, the Americans. Um, I actually think that in some ways impacted on uh, uh, Fred and Edward Eager in their business in Brisbane in particular. Anti-American feeling wasn't just at the street level. I think the federal government had some policies to their departments for a while that made Ford have to think about what they called their product. Yeah, there's a lot of sentiment about buying British product or other colonials products like tea from India or Ceylon. They were allies. They were in the war. T-Model Fords were the best-selling car in the world at that stage. And um, as a result of this animosity towards the Americans, Australia uh, ended up uh, sourcing its T-Model Fords out of Canada. The federal government said that uh, their departments couldn't buy a Ford product for a while there, wasn't it? it? Look, I think the thing was that if you bought from America, uh, the profits of whatever you bought didn't go into the war effort. And Britain certainly needed as much money as it can get to fight the war. The Brisbane Courier, the Courier at the time was the newspaper. I think the paid-for advertising there got a bit flamboyant. It was became strongly entertaining. Having scanned all of those newspapers uh, when I was doing the research, I think the most interesting reading in the whole paper was the uh, car advertisements. <laughs> there was a lot of argy-bargy that went on between the dealers, and usually it was just about product. Um, it did, however, get... Uh, a bit more personal later on. Edward Eager, the, the head of his company and uh, with the young son coming on very strongly, he did something that could have become, well, crass self-promoting. What did he do? He started his own motoring magazine. <laughs> now, the, the, the reason he did that is because the, uh, the courier at the time uh, was more than happy to take a lot of uh, dollars, advertising dollars off the motor dealers. However, they didn't have a motoring writer. So basically, the motoring pages were just advertisements. So Edward Eager saw two things out of it. Firstly, an opportunity to start a business. And secondly, uh, a means of the motor industry, not just Eager's, but the motor industry in Brisbane. 
I think he became, got an editor to do it, but he, he really drew the line in the sand that he didn't want to see it as being his thing. I think the steering wheel talked about, if I quote your, your book, un, they didn't want to be like the Brisbane Courier, unwholesome, immoral and quick advertising will be excluded from the steering wheel. <laughs> it's part of their editorial policy. Uh, and in fact, that really actually proved quite successful, didn't it? It did. It was it was making money after about fourteen months, and uh, uh, Edward Eagle was financing uh, the steering wheel. Um, significantly, all but one of the dealers in Brisbane came on board and advertised in the steering wheel, even though it was a product of E.G. Eager and Son. Mm. And that speaks volumes, I think, for Edward Eager's the respect in which he was held for the way in which he conducted his business. They were very brash, but he held respect of the other dealers. Otherwise, he wouldn't have got all those other dealers to take some of their advertising money away from the courier and put it into his motoring magazine. The one who didn't was CCM, thus reinforcing the uh, divide between those two companies that, that became even more stronger as the days went on? I think so. The, it, it, if, you, if you look at it, CCM were the, the, the two products of, of each of the companies, the products they had were very much at um, a level that they were very high competitively against each other. And there's no way known that A.V. Dodwell was going to have any of his money earned from Studebakers financing a motoring magazine that was uh, owned by someone that was selling willies. So the the rift basically started then uh, between the two companies. That was the very beginning of it. It was an important magazine. They they addressed issues of, I think, you're, what you're saying, of drink driving, safe driving, pedestrians, technical aspects of automobile, the police, yep. and they covered it all. Uh, that's rather important. I mean, I think there was one lovely comment you said uh, that they recognised that the roads were built very well but not maintained. Yeah, that was a, a quote directly in regard to the road between Brisbane and Toowoomba. And uh, uh, that road, and it's even today it's not the best road, but in those days it was uh, little more than a goat track. And... Um, they they took on the hard issues. They were prepared to have a go at governments, um, state and federal, about funding road, and then they had a go at councils. For, if you're going to have a road, for goodness sake, maintain it. Don't let it deteriorate. So maintenance was a big issue uh, at that time too with the roads that they did build that were good. And this was the first part of a chat with Murray Hubbard on his book, Car Wars Down Under, the untold story of the first Australian land speed record. We'll hear more about that in the weeks ahead. This is Overdrive across Australia. Toyota has just released an all-new model of one of their biggest hero cars and their biggest SUV, the Land Cruiser. Toyota Australia's Vice President of Sales, Marketing and Franchise Operations, Sean Hanley, said the Land Cruiser has become synonymous with tracking the harshest conditions our country has to offer. That may sound like a bit of PR speak, but the Land Cruiser has truly made its mark. G'day, Sean. How are you, David? Good to see you. Thank you for having me. 
the Land Cruiser has a long history in Australia. When did it start and it wasn't all smooth sailing? Well, look, it does have a long history, David, in fact, in Australia. And uh, as we discussed, or well, I guess Emily pretty well outlined in Tuesday's media event, but in the 1950s, Toyota was able to have its first successful export model from Japan. And the person that has great credit for that is Les Thies, later becoming Sir Leslie, as we best know him for today in history. And he was one of the first customers, actually, buying 13 Land Cruisers. And he brought them into the country primarily to work on the Snowy Mountains hydroelectric scheme. I think it was called the Snowy 1.0 at the time. Even this early on, right, so you're going back quite a long time, Toyota engineers flew from Japan to Australia, in fact, to study the vehicles at the source and send back parts for further analysis. So way back then... TMC, our parent company, uh, and our engineers were interested to understand the severity of the work that these cars were doing or these vehicles were doing, but to really understand what sort of impact these severe conditions would have on the parts, for example, hence why they sent them back for further analysis. People often tragically look at history with just uh, mythologies, a few heroes and what have you. And, and Emily's introduction was a degree, well, a strong degree of honesty. Uh, do you think, and I think you raised that later in the press conference. And that's important now, for example, in terms of supply of vehicles, which is hard to get at the moment. It's deeply important to our brand. I've often told the story that in uncertain times, people turn to companies that they trust. And Toyota has built up an incredible high level of trust right here in Australia, and, and we never take it for granted. And, you know, that trust does go back in history for Toyota. It's been built over many years, and I often say to people, we should never, ever forget how we got here. And we believe that that trust that we've developed over those many years of the history of our brand in this country will allow us to recover quickly when circumstances allow for any challenges that we may face. Building a tough vehicle is not just building, adding a bit of weight and making it stronger. There's a lot of technology in that as well. The engine, it's no longer a big thumping V8, pardon the expression. No. It's a more refined power plant. It is. It's a V6 and it's a diesel, but it's every bit as capable. And that's the thing that we always try to impress to people that, you know, I can remember years ago, I was liking the story when four-cylinder passenger cars were coming to the market. It was probably kind of in my era. And everybody used to talk about, I can remember the evolution from the V8 passenger car to the six-cylinder passenger car to, God forbid, a a four-cylinder front-wheel drive passenger car, right? Mm. And how people used to say, well, people move from a V8 to a six, well, people move to a six to a four. Well, the truth is, yes, they will. And it, it gets, it's all around a fit for purpose, capability, performance. History tells us in this industry that people will move if the vehicle they're buying is fit for purpose and it offers the technologies, particularly around safety, that they're after. And it's got a 10-speed automatic gearbox and that. But taking on new technology, do you think the customers will embrace something like a hybrid? I do. I mean... Our hybrid sales now are just under 30%, I think, year-to-date of our total sales. I mean, if you go back to 2001 when we launched the first hybrid, which was a Prius passenger car version, I don't think too many people would have been saying that 30% of Toyota sales in the next 20 years would have been this version. To get to carbon neutrality, we believe you've got to offer 
a variety of choices and technologies that are, A, take us towards this ultimate goal of carbon neutrality and net zero emissions, but also are fit for purpose. So in other words, when you look at land cruisers, we'd never rule out the potential of some type of other powertrain going into that car in the future. But it could very well be that it could be fuel cell electric vehicle, for example. Uh, And hydrogen lends itself to this type of heavier commercial type vehicle as well. Toyota head office has put out that reality that a good short-term step at least is a hybrid technology rather than necessarily jumping to it. That's a progression really, isn't it? Yeah. It's a progression. It's a a process to the end without necessarily hanging a one-off road to Damascus conversion. Well, it's a journey. And, you know, when we talk about the notion of not leaving anyone behind, well, right now, if you just convert it completely to battery electric vehicles, you know, they're quite expensive technologies. So our journey is that we are, as I said, totally committed to this carbon neutral uh, position that is achieving net zero positions across all aspects of our operations. But every market in the globe is at a different situ- a different time and a different situation. You've got to take people on the journey and not leave them behind. It's a politically difficult area in one way, but Toyota sees itself of having to show leadership in that in terms of encouraging to the right direction those who may be doubtful. Does it have a corporate community feel to that? We know. I mean, it's, you know, we often talk about government regulation and government incentives, etc. But at the end of the day, we understand clearly that we must make a positive contribution to the society and communities of which we operate, which is global for us. So therefore, to survive, we must head down the road of this carbon neutral outcome it's simply a must for us it's 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 simply something that we have to do and we will and a very different look at the front really isn't it yeah yeah you are making a statement really by saying the top of the range sahara really uh, has quite a different sort of lower ground down grill and so on and pods compared to the more I use the word basic, but I don't mean that derogatorily, a, a, a look of some of the other models. Land Cruiser competes in a very diverse segment now, and it can also, you know, kind of cross up to that upper market type segment, not quite in the luxury, but not far away from it. So it has to have that appeal. And uh, I think that the styling that we've now adopted, particularly for those upper grades, certainly will be appealing to those people looking for something, maybe more finishes that improve the Land Cruiser's luxury status as well. I like your point about making the controls as intuitive as possible. I've been interviewing some professors who have been looking at maybe rating cars based on how much their standard sorts of operations are or are not distractive. Yeah. And uh, you, you seem to have emphasised that very strongly in this one, that it that it has a logic, particularly if we start sharing cars a bit more, where I might jump out of one car into another. It's quite true. And as right now... Product General Manager mentioned on Tuesday, a high level of thought and clever design has gone into the interiors for the Land Cruiser 300. Similar to every vehicle Toyota produces, 
The ergonomic layout of buttons and switches are grouped by purpose and for intuitive type of use and driver ease, all right? So safety is big. And to be able to continue to do the things you've got to do within a car but keep your eyes on the road are important. So all these things around safety, ergonomics have been deeply considered. And you love your job. I do. I'm one of the very most fortunate people in the auto industry to have the honour. And I always see it that way as an honour and the privilege to represent this fine brand. And I never take that for granted either. And um, also... Uh, I represent the brand in these types of forums, but behind the representative of the brand, there's many, many people who make up Toyota, and I should also send my great thanks to all of them because during these rather challenging times, they've all absolutely uh, stood up and they've made us what we are today. And I think history will look back upon the last 19 months uh, of challenges. And I always say to our own people, history will look back and will be very kind to this team that's navigated through these rather challenging times the way they have. They've been admirable, and I'm immensely proud of all of them. Sean, thanks for your time. Thank you, David, and all the best. And that was Sean Hanley, who is the Vice President of Marketing and Franchise Operation for Toyota Australia. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Murray Hubbard, Sean Hanley and Paul Just for their help during this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook site, Overdrive City Driven Media. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.